Hey good people, how we doing? I usually have a pretty lengthy introduction for the episodes, but this episode is so important. This episode deals with a place that I considered my second home for five years of my life and whose lessons resonate so deep with me that I still feel the reverberations of them today. This episode deals with the youth and their hunger to change, deals with the support of the older generations having their back. This is a, a conversation, it's a fair exchange, and it's one that I beg that you have an open mind towards. Open your ears, but not only your ears, your hearts as well. Let's get into this episode, guys. Hey, good people. How we doing? How we doing? Welcome back to another episode of Good Radio. This one is really important to me. Um, for those of you who don't know, I went to a school called LREI down in, uh, I don't know, West Village or Soho, wherever it is, and uh, a place that I consider my second home. Uh, I had some great memories there, but um, in the midst of what's going on now and the social change, uh, there's been an account called Black at LREI, and it has been made apparent that uh, my experience um, of just, you know, being being a cool experience might not have been uh, the general experience ov- overall. Um, and it's an account that has made a lot of people talk, a lot of teachers uh, maybe uncomfortable. And now uh, there's action being called for to change the policy at LREI uh, dealing with racial issues. So here with us today, we have two uh, amazing young men with us that are uh, spearheading those uh, that policy change. And we have some alumni, all of which went to LREI at some different point uh, in the past 20 years, 30 years, maybe. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, so yeah, let's let's get into this episode. It's going to be really great. We're just going to talk. Uh, no, you know, nice. I want this episode to be open and and honest. Um, so we're going to start off with these two young men. How about Marcus? You go first. Introduce yourself, or or Johnny, whoever whoever's ready to go. All right. Well, hello all. My name is Marcus Moise. Um, I am the current. LREI co-leader of DSU, as well as the director of social justice. Um, and yeah. Okay. And um, BSU for people, obviously, I know, but for people who don't know, pull that out a little bit. Oh yeah, BSU is um, our black student union. It goes throughout all grades in the high school. And there's also a separate one in the middle school, I believe ran by Margaret Andrews. And when did that start? Um, I don't, I'm not actually exactly sure, but I do know it was after I left the middle school. Okay. I say that because it's, it's so crazy. We didn't even, I I graduated a little or Elizabeth Irwin in 2009. And when I first got into contact with, uh, the two uh, young men here, I was confused because we didn't even have a, a, a black student union. So that is one great, great, great aspect. All right. Ajani. 
What's going um, on, brother? Yeah, hey, how's it going? Um, my name is Ajani Jackson. I am the current student body president, as well as the director of community on LRI's high school student government. Um, and I, along with Marcus, co-lead Black Student Union. Thank you all so much. So much. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I feel like, hmm, I feel like I want to start with the alumni uh, in terms of who's, Who's open to talk? I don't know if everyone wants to say their name or introduce themselves. Amy, you want to go for it? Yeah, I just had actually a quick question. I was wondering if um, if Ajani and Marcus could share how they came to to Little Red, if they what mm -hmm. grade they joined or how it was that they came to be Little Red students. I know it happens that um, the that yourself and myself, Akim. Uh, I know Phillips' uh, background and Blakely. I don't. I, I'm not familiar with. I know we all went to the high school, so I'm curious to know how how our two current students uh, came to to Little Red. That's a great question, uh, Ajani. What about yeah? Yeah, I um I came to LRI in the ninth grade, um, coming from a separate middle school, and I came in. Okay. Uh, what uh, was school uh, a similar type of school as LREI? Um, it was a private school, but it was nothing like LREI. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. And um, ninth grade, what was the initial experience coming into? Like, what did you think about it? I know I went to, I came in eighth grade, and it was a total culture shock for me, right? Like, I grew up in a total different kind of space. Um, for those who don't know, I'm a part of, and I think maybe uh, the other alumni are, uh, which is weird. Um, I'm a part of a, a, prep, a thing called Prep for Prep. And uh, that brought me in in eighth grade, or some people in seventh grade. And I was from a school that was just like, not like LREI at all. And I was like taken aback for a lot of my eighth grade year and had to adjust. What was your um, initial experience at EI? Um, yeah, I remember I applied to LREI, um, hoping for a decent amount of diversity because the school that I had come from previously, um, was not the most diverse. Um, now when I first got into LREI, it wasn't as diverse as I hoped it would be. Um, but it was still, a, it was a much different community, um, than I had come from beforehand. Um, so that it was, it was just nice to have like a community that was small and you know, supportive. Got you. And uh, what about uh, you, Marcus? What was your road to? Um, for me, prior to coming to LREI, I came through the middle school, by the way. Um, I went to a public school that was much closer. Um, and I took the path of a better chance. Um, got into LREI. And I believe I was the only person actually admitted to the school for the seventh grade. Um, and after that, it was, it was very interesting because my class wasn't really diverse at all, even though it was during the period where LREI was putting all of their students of color predominantly in one class. Um, it wasn't that diverse. And it was just, there was a lot going on um, and it was a little awkward for me, um, because, you know, there's this new black kid, but not only that, you know, these, 
kids who I did associate with had already sort of created their friend groups. So now it's me trying to find my place, not only as a black student, but as a person in the school. Um, and I definitely did think it was gonna be much more diverse because the way LREI sets up their tours, which I think we're all very aware of, um, it looks much more diverse than it actually is. So coming into the school and you know, not seeing the same faces you did when you visited, it's a little shocking. A thousand percent shocking. Um, I want I want to bring in some of the alumni. Does anyone have a similar experience? Uh, who wants to tell about how they entered the school? I can go. Okay. So uh, Kim knows me. Kyle knows me. Me and Kyle actually both came from the same contingent in prep, prep for prep. Um, I actually went to. Uh, Grace Church School first for middle school, which at the time did not have a high school, which they currently do now. But um, to me, LREI seemed like heaven because Grace Church School was like wore uniform and was so strict and like you could literally get in trouble for wearing the wrong socks and wearing the wrong this and that. So when I like got accepted to LREI, I was like, okay, like this is going to be such an like a, such a different experience but more amazing than I had experienced. I hated Grace Church School. So I was just like, I needed more looseness. So they were just too strict for me at the time. So I thought that my experience would have been different than that. But I was there from 06 to 2010 okay. at LREI. Uh, anybody else want to go? Sure, I'll jump in. Um, I started at Little Red as a seventh grader through Prepper Prep. Um, so did middle school at Little Red and then I had to make the decision on what high school was gonna look like, applied to a different, a few different schools, but ended up feeling like um, that EI would have been a good fit for me. So I did um, upper school at EI from uh, 2000, sorry, from 98 to 2002, um, which was an interesting time to be um, in high school. 9-11 uh, was my senior year, so I experienced 9-11 in a really up close and personal way. Um, I thought my education was, I think I learned more about how to handle myself socially than I did academically. I think that was the time when LREI wasn't as strong academically, but really was focused on a social justice mission. So I had really good experiences that by the time I got to college, when I went to Boston College, um, while I had some trouble academically and had to work hard in that space, I think the social and the social and, and the um, politics and all that that I kind of experienced at LREI really helped buoy me in that really conservative traditional space that Boston College presented. So it, overall, I think I got a lot out of the education at LREI. What about you, Amy? Do you want to share? No. Okay. Unmuting myself. So I came to Little Red in the ninth grade. Uh, I am prep for prep contingent 22. And so I had attended seventh and eighth grade at Manhattan Country School, which is also a progressive uh, or one of the more progressive uh, day options with within the prep for prep uh, experience. And so I did choose Little Red because I was so uh, charmed and, and enamored by the diversity that I saw. Um, 
I think because I was there right when the school was still committed to being uh, 98 students in the high school, the diversity that was present for me felt uh, consistent with what I saw in my application process. So my graduating class had 35 uh, students in it and the grades that preceded me had the same. But then I think maybe by the time Kyle was a freshman, his, his high school class had many more folks. And so there wasn't a big change in the number of students of color, but it was a, such, a, such a larger percentage of, of, my, of my grade. Um, and I think uh, coming from Washington Heights, commuting down to Soho, I felt then that my experience of diversity matched my expectations. That is not to say that maybe my expectations were, were too low. Maybe my expectations um, could have been a bit more radical. Um, and I think that's something that, that, that the, 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 the voices of the younger alumni have definitely challenged me to think about whether or not I've been too jaded or, or callous or complacent in, in what I expected of racism and microaggressions in my teenage years. I felt lucky to be at, a, at one of the more diverse schools that I could have been at within the Prep for Prep program. I didn't think I had permission or I had a good reason to question it. Because I, I, you know, I've definitely believed in that mantra where if you make a mistake, you lose your scholarship. Yes, a thousand percent. And that's just a sign of my age, which means it's great that times are changing. And I think it's a good opportunity for, um, for older alums to, to help younger alums ask more strategic questions. Um, I was in student government. Uh, there was no BSU back then. And so I was very, very happy with my red experience, but I also know that I didn't think it was my place as a child, having con considering myself to be someone who was less than 18 years old. I didn't think it was my place to question the opportunity that I was given beyond what I could influence, which was, which was choosing a more diverse school. Wow, um, that's big. And so I don't know, you know, so we have obviously um, have more alums to, to kind of speak up and, and share their experience. Uh, so down the line, I'm curious to know uh, if students explore opportunities for independent study. I know that my senior year project was on colorism and racism, and I was so glad that I did that before going to Bucknell University. So I'm just curious to know if current students, what current students you think expect of how their one school will handle racism and microaggression and what students expect of, uh, of how they'll be able to learn about this while still having to be a cooperative member of a prescribed community. Well, I think, um, and that's definitely something that we got to talk about. We got to bust that open. I think first we should talk about what the actual policy demand change demands are right? Because I'm, I don't know. And I'm sure that a lot of people listening don't know. So one uh, of y'all want to take that? Yeah, Johnny. Um, yeah, so this uh, racial harassment policy, as it is called, um, dates all the way back to, I believe, last year. 
when it was uh, when we first started drafting it um and you know since then it has sort of gotten you know a bit lost in the sauce as things do when you're trying to add stuff to you know handbooks um especially when they're as official as a racial harassment policy um so it had been lost for a good many months um and then when all this sparked back up we were like all right now's the time we really got like what, what this is too long it's taking too long we gotta step up and do something um so marcus and i drafted a letter to the administration um with a list of demands and one of them being that they fast track the racial harassment policy um and then we got that signed by all of the leaders of all of the affinity groups um at the high school um and so on that the do you want to know like the gist of the racial harassment policy yeah so it's Essentially, we don't, we, there isn't something in the school's handbook that provides an area for students to report incidents of racism or an area where there are set um, disciplinary measures for when an act of racism is committed. So, you know, use of racial slurs can be let, the punishment can be left up open to interpretation. Um, and as you know, when this stuff is left open to interpretation, it's very rarely punished. Um, so our goal is to create something in which, um, you know, fosters, I guess that's the word, accountability and builds that in the community because that is currently non-existent. It's interesting yeah. to me. Oh, sorry. Uh, go ahead, Marcus. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, going back to that letter Johnny and I made, um, along with the racial harassment policy, some of the um, items of I guess improvement that we asked for was the improvement of the in-school education surrounding race for both the teachers and the students. Um, an overall improvement of the assemblies just because we feel like when it comes to racially, um, I guess motivated or centered assemblies, it's usually left to the students. Um, and we were just asking that maybe the school could use its connections to bring in speakers or people who are just more educated than us to talk about these topics, um, as well as a social justice requirement. Um, I'm not sure how many of these classes were available to you all, but there are classes such as like the Spike Lee, Representation and Resistance, Sociology of Education, African-American History. And we were just hoping that maybe we can make a requirement for classes such as that, just because we feel it's way too easy for people to avoid conversations like these. Mm -hmm. um, and lastly, relations with other New York City private schools regarding race. Um, things have been taken very s slow prior to current recent events. Um, and we believe that if schools came together to actually have discussions about race, it would be much easier to create policies because people could exchange ideas and exchange stories and say, okay, what's a common problem and how can we solve this and how can we do it quickly? Now, uh, Amy, I see you. Um, and I do want to ask the alumni, right, going, earing towards Amy's prior question of expectation. Um, because I know in my time, we didn't really, you know, even though it was a social justice school, right, we didn't really, we weren't really focused on all of that stuff. Um, in terms of students, right? I, I know I was a knucklehead. I didn't really care about all that stuff. Um, Blakely, you know. Um, 
I want to know uh, what, especially from Amy and Kim, what uh, was there any of that in your time? Talk of change or or policy shifting, and what 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 could they expect? Can the the, the young people expect? Amy, yeah, go I ahead. Think, and Kim, let me just jump all over, and then you can you can uh, you can definitely just correct or jump on top of whatever I say. But I feel that Marcus, you say a lot of things that were on the minds of students when the school decided to double its size. Because I remember we were so scared about losing all of that opportunity for really intense immersion and immersion learning, uh, close learning, uh, close readings, when the school would double in size. And so it was a financial decision. And we were very worried about losing some of those, those daily experiences that you, that you mentioned. Because I think those goals that you have of having better speakers and having a social justice um, course, or maybe even, I don't know if they still do uh, mini masters where like the three day condensed, um, those were, those were normal. Those were normative for us. So we had a teacher, Eliana Jimenez, who was uh, very proactive about bringing in speakers who might usually speak to undergraduate students. Nick Ohan was a treasure trove of, of insight. Mark, uh, Mark Bledstein, I think that, but Mark was another person who was a, a living historian for us. And because our school was smaller, we had conversations. Again, my senior project was a undergraduate quality uh, research paper and, and, and independent study on colorism and racism and classism, um, but specifically colorism. And so that was par for the course when Little Red, when the high school was capped at 100 students. So your expectations are very uh, reasonable and reminiscent of what we experienced as older alums. Um, it seems like some of the fears that that would be lost to income turned out to be true. When the school doubled, I guess it, it didn't accommodate uh, some of those cultural values that should have been priority. So I'm really glad to hear you share those very reasonable expectations. But I also wanted to challenge and ask, um, and ask you, would high school students commit to going into the school in extra two weekends a month when, we're, when there aren't holiday vacations scheduled? The real estate is owned. The school can open whenever the students want it to open. Would students commit to having maybe a six-day school week sometimes to make time to study the things that matter, but that have to also go hand in hand with learning math and science and grammar and technology? It cannot be in either or. And I think Kim alluded earlier to a learning curve he had when he went to Boston College. When I got to Bucknell, I had no learning curve in terms of the academic expectations, mostly because of prep for prep and Little Red at the time. I was very grateful to have a progressive paradigm from Little Red, but I think we have to, I think it's important to argue for a possibility where Little Red students do even more. Or being committed to social justice means you're doing more than what you do when you're already committed to mental faculty. Um, somebody want to take that? Yeah, well, go ahead. Um, yeah, I can tell you right now that um, when you talk about six day school weeks as a high schooler, that like that makes me shiver a little bit. Um, but a work week is going to kill you, just so you know. What'd you say? A work week is going to kill you. 
Oh yeah, I can't wait. Um, but I can also tell you that the students of LREI um, were, especially the student leaders at LREI, are constantly work insanely hard beyond the normal hours that a student should be working. For example, Marcus and I have been working on this all summer. Um, last summer, uh, the current that the student government at that time came in to redo a class. So you know, the students of LREI are definitely committed to the LREI. Um, what's it called, mission statement. Um, arguably, you could say more than the administration, but I'm not gonna get into that. Um, and then like the reason why we wanted to add a social justice requirement and some of the other demands like that is because we know that there's time for it, like within the regular school week. There, we have the assemblies, we have uh, these classes which are offered as regular classes already. So it's just, a, and we already have requirements of other sorts. Like we have a, a writing workshop requirement and a, um, what's oh, the biology requirement. Um, so it's like, if you add a social justice requirement, it really shouldn't be that much trouble for students. So. I want to ask, um, <clears throat> because again, Blakely, you can maybe talk on this or, or it came or Amy. Um, when we went, we did have the assemblies and it was like the dreaded Tuesday assembly. It was, um, I know I didn't like it. I, the assemblies were fine with me inherently, but I hated the, questions I had to field in terms of, ah, oh, do we really need another fill in the minority assembly, right? Um, it almost felt like they were forced upon students, um, not just students of color, but you know, the wider student body. And then in turn, the student body pushed back even harder to be idiots or to be uh, dismissive and ignorant uh, during the off time, right? How do we how do we address that? Uh, Blakely, I see your hand up. So one of the things, so I think everybody, uh, for the most part, dreaded those assemblies when we were um, there. I think a lot of the time, though, it was evident that there was no effort or not much effort put into them. And so I remember because I was a part of the step team, so it would always be like, oh, y'all going to step, especially when it had Black History Month assembly. Anytime, anytime it was anything related to Black people, minorities, it was like, oh, you going to step? Oh, you going to step? And so it really felt like they were just trying to add fillers and not really use the assembly as an educational tool, not use the assemblies as something that was really going to be uplifting and they they cons they wanted us to put them together but they didn't really give us resources outside of the school so other than oh you're going to sing and I know I sang a couple of times because I could sing and then I step and then I danced and it was pretty much not anything but a circus to me like because it was like oh y'all gonna dance y'all gonna sing you're gonna step and that is what and then we're gonna say a speech by martin luther king or something and then that's gonna be the black history month assembly and that really does not obviously encompass the experience or it what doesn't is do anything exactly i, I think and so oh, go ahead no i was just gonna say and so i feel like that's why people dreaded the assemblies so much because I feel like if it was actually effort put into it and educational effort, like it would have, it may be done differently because I felt like 
even the structure of the assemblies was pretty much the same all of the time. And so maybe if it was changed into something that was a little bit more interesting, it may have sparked uh, more interest from the student body. And I think, I, I see your hand, Marcus. I think that um, diversity, right, going with diversity versus actual inclusion kind of adds to that, right? So it's the, the phenomena of just, you know, all the black kids sitting at one table in, in the cafeteria and everyone else sitting, you know, amongst themselves, which was prevalent in a lot of grades. I didn't subscribe to it a lot, but I know Blakely, your grade did that a lot. Actually, my grade did that too, right? And it's just kind of when the assemblies come in, the administration and the staff are scrambling to, to make people kind of include each other instead of it being like a kind of organic thing, right? Uh, Marcus, what did you have to say? Yeah, I was sort of going to go back to what uh, Blakely was saying. It's sort of this inconsistency of expectations. Um, you know, they expect to see Black art. They expect to see all these Black students perform at such high rates. Sort of this, um, I guess, to prove not only diversity, but also the quality of our education. But at the same time, like, Blakely said, we're not really provided with the resources. And just sort of as a reference, um, Daniel Jagade, I believe, of 19, he, in my opinion, had one of the greatest Black um, history assemblies, as well as a Black arts assembly. He sort of separated them. So he separately focused on teaching Black history and showing Black art. But what he did was he gathered his own resources. So he got um, a step team. He gathered a bunch of articles, a bunch of not as well-known people. And because of that, it was a great assembly. But after that, we were held to that expectation for every assembly after. But the thing is, we didn't have the resources to find that. I mean, granted, we could ask him, but the problem is, why are we not already provided with those resources? Why is it that we need to get a teacher from the middle school to help high schoolers with the Black History Month assembly? Uh, I see Ajani, um, I see Amy. Before I, I get to you guys, I wanna ask Kim, do you have anything to put in here? Because I know you've worked with a lot of different um, schools and yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I wish I could say that this, problem, if you will, is indicative of only LREI. But, you know, I think what you all are experiencing, what we have all experienced, are things that have occurred regardless on whether it's a PWI for middle and high school or whether it's a PWI for college or whether it's a PWI that you work at. These are things that are historic to the experience of being people of color in predominantly white institutions. And Part of it is that I think, I think I look back on my experience, you know, I got to LREI in 1996, um, graduated in 2002. And in those six years, I remember when I was getting ready to go to upper school, you know, LREI couldn't even keep the students who were in middle school to go to upper school. It was literally a pulling teeth trying to find students who would stay on. And I think as schools get bigger and as populations get bigger and more diverse, if you will. Um, I think a lot of what is core to those institutions tends to get diffused and diluted. 
and you lose some of those things along the way. I think when you go from a, my graduating class was 19. So when you go from a graduating class of 19 to what's a graduating class at LRE now, like 60 something, is that the number? Correct? Okay. Yeah, when you go from, when you go to triple the number of students in a class, you invariably will lose some of the things that are core in its mission. And I think oftentimes when you start to lose those things, I always feel that it's important to ask a school to go back to its mission, go back to its founding documents, go back to its history. Because the things that make LREI the place that people want to go to, especially people of color, are the things that should be infused in its curriculum, infused in its student body, infused in its administration. And when things like that aren't being infused in those spaces, you can also call on the school's mission to push back against that. Because I think what makes LREI unique among the schools, particularly in New York City, is that it's a, it's a school grounded in social justice and social change and social movements that really allows its student body to really call to task those who are in power in ways that you probably can't do at a more traditional space. So what I do always urge young people to do is remember to call out those things when they are occurring. And when you get pushback, push back even further, because at its core, LREI is a school that accepts students who push back. And I think at its core, and what makes it a special place that it is, is that it allows for that. Even when things may not get solved, it allows for those uncomfortable conversations that traditionally don't occur in other spaces. So I, I would push the young men to continue pushing the institution to be the place that you want it to be, because I think at its core, that's what LREI truly does stand for. Before we get to it, Johnny, I want to get to Amy. And I want to point this out, right? So we have been a place that pushback is possible, but it's important because Amy said at the beginning, right, you, she didn't feel like it was our place, right, as, as younger kids, right? And I, I felt that way too. I felt like, why, why is everyone always complaining? Why is it, you know, we're at this great place. So there is a dynamic of being in this school around these well-to-do people of like, why, why am I stepping out of box? Why am I, you know, making noise when it doesn't need to be made, right? Uh, Amy, please go ahead. Yeah, so I, I want to just echo emphatically what Akim said, um, and I want to share a strategic question and then also kind of share, a, hopefully, kind of a more of an insider perspective. I think the, your expectations are, are very, very reasonable and very, um, we all want our world to be a more fair place. Um, it is never a good feeling when you know you have to work harder than folks who have the privilege not to care about your experiences. Um, but I think ultimately, you should ask your administrators whether or not they're going to look for parents and families that will choose to pay for a rigorous social justice education. Because the mission statement does call for that kind of experience. Now, are you going to get families, enough families to pay $50,000 a year or whatever, wherever the number is now to really fund that? Because one of the things that happened that we all saw happen when we were kids, Little Red, Little Red as a high school was a place you could go to when you, when you messed up somewhere else. And so you had families there that, would cut, that could cut the check and they had no problem with singing Kumbaya, but, they, but don't make them work too hard on the social justice aspect. They wanted a school that was a prep school that their kid could go to after they messed up somewhere else. And so you have every logical 
the logical question to ask of the adults that you're speaking with, the administrators, is you're taking, you're accepting paychecks, you're accepting tuition from families. Are they going to be willing to pay for a rigorous social justice curriculum? Because you're recruiting students who may, you know, you're not, there were kids who, who could just pay to mess up and who could pay to not care about social justice once they had to put in extra work. However, I also want to say on the other side of that, as you get older, I always believed from the time I was a little girl, life is not fair. That was a philosophy in my house that not everyone ascribes to. I still ascribe to it. Life is not fair. So it is absolutely important to want more fairness and to question why you have to work harder than others for things that, that benefit everyone. But that's not going to change for the rest of your life in so many different parts of your life, whether it is your romantic life, whether it is your financial experiences, whether it's your experiences in caring for your elders as they age, it's not going to be fair that you have to work harder than some siblings or that you have to work a longer work day because someone that you love needs more income for their wheelchair. Life, in my opinion, shouldn't be viewed as fair. That being said, really push back on, on language such as we already put in the normal hours a student should. We shouldn't be doing more. Um, the other people should show more interest. Interest means work. Interest means you literally have to choose to do a Google search for a regional speaker. It means you have to do more work. It's not fair. And everyone should be more vested. And so parents should know that even their, their tuition check still comes with an expectation of, of disciplined, intellectually curious children as well. So I think, I think you, should, you should hold the adults accountable for the money that they accept. But also keep in mind, you're always going to have to work harder than others. You're always going to feel that, you're F, that, that what you have to do is a little unfair. Young men, young, young men, please jump in, whoever wants to jump in. First. Um, yeah, um, to that, I know that when it comes to finding people who want to uh, go through rigorous social justice-based um, education, I think that coming into LREI, that's what's advertised. Um, you don't go to LREI expecting not to have a rigorous social justice-based um, education. Uh, the biggest shock is to come to LREI and find out that the social justice-based education isn't as rigorous as it was advertised. Um, so at this point, I think it's more so holding the administration accountable, like you said, to their mission statement, um, bringing them back to their roots and why, like what the school was founded on in the first place. Um, which is, you know, the inclusion of all and ensuring that everyone is getting the education in this field that they need to be successful in this field. Um, so, yeah, and there is always this um, feeling of working twice as hard to get half as far. And, you know, I'm well aware that um, that might not go away, but I'm fully prepared to deal with that as I am student body president um, I remember my campaign slogan if you will um, if that's what you want to call it was um, let me be your voice um, so I feel obligated to make sure that the students that I'm representing feel represented so whatever they're going through I need to make sure that the administration goes through that too 
Um, so if they're all having trouble, you know, socially um, with their friends because, you know, there's incidents of racism going on in their friend group, I need to make sure that the administration is not aware, not only aware of that, but I need to make sure that they feel bad about that, right? So it's one of those things where it's like, I need to make sure that their voices get heard. So I'm always going to work hard. Before I jump to uh, Marcus, <clears throat> I want to personally and uh, on behalf of all the, the old guys here, uh, say how great and, and proud uh, of a, how proud we are of how great of a job you guys are doing, right? Um, it is so important uh, for us to shift the narrative of who we are when we occupy these spaces and to see that you guys are both taking on roles of leadership is incredible, um, especially coming from a person who was <laughs> not that when I was going to EI at all, right? Um, and I think that if I, though I, there was, so when I came into the high school, into the middle school, there was a great migration of people, uh, men of color who were present, uh, when I was in eighth grade and then left when I got to the high school. And I feel like if I had, um, older guys that were doing what you're doing, Ajani, and what you're doing, Marcus, I would have maybe had a different path. So, uh, you guys are doing great. Thank you guys for, for that. Um, Marcus, I want to get to you in terms of what you want, what you think about what just was said. Um, yeah, first and foremost, I'd like to just say, going back to the idea of, you know, not feeling like it was your place to ask for more. Um, I a hundred percent agree with that, or I did agree with that. Um, I think up until about sophomore year, I never really envisioned myself as much of a leader. Um, even when I was, you know, asked to be a co-leader of BSU, I never really felt like it was right, you know? I always felt like, okay, there's someone better to do this, I'll sit back. And then looking at what was being allowed to happen, um, I realized that it was that mentality of, it's not my place, there's someone's better, let me sit back. It was that mentality that prevented any actual progress, you know? So even if you don't think you're the perfect, the perfect person for the job, which I didn't, um, your voice, even if it's like a mouse squeak, like it still makes noise, you know? So after seeing myself as a co-leader of BSU, and, you know, at first it was three people, so the work was more divided. But now with just Dejani and I um, being, you know, a more important person in that role, I'm seeing myself more and more as a leader to the point where I decided to run for director of social justice. And I'm just seeing now that it's not about being the number one voice. It's about being a voice for all the people, you know, it's not just your voice. Um, now after that monologue, let me get back to the, the question at hand. Um, I definitely do think that there is a, as Johnny said, work twice as hard, um, mentality at LREI and in life in general. But I think that for LREI specifically, what we want to do, it shouldn't be the mentality of working twice as hard just to get half as far. It should be working twice as hard because you want to be number one, you know? 
And I think it's that idea of removing race or class from the equation, just, hey, I'm working twice as hard because I want to be, without a doubt, the best I can be or the top of the class, just, just period. Like, I'm working hard to work hard, not because, oh, I'm Black, I have to, you know, make up for being Black, because no one should ever have to make up for being Black. You're Black, you're still a person, you're still a student, you're still educated, you still got chosen to go to this, you know, astute private school. Yeah. Um, I, Blakely, go ahead. Okay, my comment is going to encompass a lot of what was said. Um, I think me coming into LREI, for me, I didn't really have the expectation of social justice. I felt like it was more talked about as what was the history of LREI. But for me, I didn't expect it. I don't know why, or I don't know if just maybe I was, I don't know. But for me, it was not expected that uh, social justice was going to be a part of the curriculum, was going to be a part. It was more like, hey, Angela Davis used to go here, woohoo, like in the past, progressive education, Elizabeth Irwin, blah, blah, blah. It was more of a historical thing, but it didn't give me the indication that that was going to be happening currently at, at my time there. So when I got there, um, I wasn't really surprised. I had a worse experience at my previous school, so that's why it was like, okay, this is like much better. But I think that um, as Marcus was saying, as Amy was saying, I really felt that, okay, like I'm in this place, I'm blessed to be in this place, um, especially coming from prep for prep. Um, I'm like, I'm not getting the experience that um, a lot of children my age are able to get so I need to shut up and sit down and not make myself too loud. And I think that's a lot of what we experience as Black people, like not being too loud, not being too, too, not, have, not letting our voice be too loud so that we won't be pointed out. We won't be, just get, bring too much attention to ourselves so that um, there won't be a negative attention. And so one of the things, I felt a lot of, tension and things while I was there but being that my experience was I struggled with a lot of family stuff while I was in high school so my grades were very low so I always felt like number one my grades didn't always reflect the work that I could know I could do but more importantly it made me feel like okay I can't really say anything about social justice i can't really say anything about any injustice or racism that i'm experiencing because they don't care about me because my grades aren't good and so i spent a lot of time in the principal's office and stuff because my grades were low so i felt like i didn't have like i didn't have a right to say anything else because I wasn't performing the way they wanted me to perform. And so I think that's very important because regardless of who you are or how your grades are or what your experience was prior, um, there should still be a voice for all the students there. And it shouldn't be different experiences because I would watch other um, like white students 
go through similar experiences and be like, yo, why are you getting that pat on the back? And I know it had to do with money, but at the same time, regardless of how much money you're giving to the institution, like we're all students here, we all came to get the same education. We're all contributing something to this student body, whether it's money. Well, the students, obviously, it's the parents that are contributing money. But as students, we're all contributing to this student body and we shouldn't be treated differently. You shouldn't be telling me because my grades are low that um, I should just go get my GED. Whereas in these white students that I know are experiencing the same things, y'all are helping them and doing all this stuff and making way for them to... Uh, to graduate on time and do the things that, you know, I just felt more needs to be done, basically. But, yeah. Marcus, I see you. Uh, Amy, I see you. I just wanted to say, and uh, me and Blakely had spoke about this um, some time ago, but it is, um, it's a weird dynamic because, you know, there are students who are getting such outside help, right, because of their financial access. And because, you know, their parents are on certain boards and uh, doing certain things in terms of endowment, they might get a little bit of uh, slack given to them by uh, key folk. Uh, and then all the while, we have people who are here and feel like we're, uh, it's a privilege to be here. Uh, we have to, we make it like we have to work that much harder. It's something that goes back to what Akeem said in our episode, where it's, it's almost like just a re- an act of revolution and rebellion to be there. I just want to share with Blakely a really short anecdote, which I hope is just in some encouraging uh, information for you, even though it's not relevant to you now. But uh, again, when Little Red was smaller, there were several students of color who almost didn't graduate. And because our graduating classes were smaller, it was easier for us as friends and for teachers and the principal to intervene. I know of one person who was a senior when I was a freshman, Nick O'Han was principal. That graduating class didn't break 20 people. And, um, you know, it was a young man who was bursting with artistic talent and his math teacher coached them as a, there was a little rap group, you know, and there was one guy in particular who maybe almost didn't quite make it. And the math teacher worked with Nick O'Han to make it happen. And that was Micah. I think Micah still is still the pre- the principal now. No, Mike is not the high school principal. Well, second anecdote, when I was a senior, one of my friends was at risk of, of not quite graduating. Ruth Jurgensen, who's now prep for prep CEO, she had come back to Little Red and was my principal my senior year. And we were able to, between Ruth and Ileana, um, you know, they just made sure that, that there were the appropriate stopgap measures to make sure that my, that my friend got her her high school diploma and didn't have to 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 deal with life without it um and so i just want you to know that at least when little red was smaller um i do recall that students of color of low income you know had immediate access to to intervention and i am so sorry to hear that you were made to feel less than for for reasons well ruth was the one who was pushing the ged for me so i don't know Yeah. yeah so (laughs) (laughs) um we're gonna let let me speak to that really quickly i think that um also it's it's important we brought up iliana before we brought up uh micah right a a lot of people um it's important to shine a light on the staff that do work hard 
um, in terms uh, and are advocates for kids of color because it's not easy, right? Um, someone brought up uh, Orville, right? It's not easy to just be a person of color in that environment. Uh, and it's much harder to be an advocate, especially if uh, the student is seen as a problem child, as I was, right? So to be, um, to be an advocate for those kids and already be getting pushback from the staff is something very admirable. So thank you to the staff that do that. Uh, Marcus, please go ahead. Yeah, going back to what um, Blakely was saying, this idea of not feeling like it was your place to speak about social justice due to your academic success or extracurriculars, there's a very, I mean, this might be a touchy subject, but there's a very big idea of, or mentality, or just in general, tokenism at LREI. Um, this idea of some people being put first because of how many things they participate in. Or, or like, for example, this person leads an X block, is on student government, um, does sports, yada, yada, yada. We should make this person like, <laughs> yeah, Johnny just pointed to himself, but uh, you know, we should make this person the face of this movement. We should let this person have a big voice when it comes to decisions. And on top of that, being a person of color, it's like all these investors and, you know, the board is like, whoa, this person of color is like really important at the school. That must mean it's a diverse school. So it's this whole sort of cycle of admitting token students to make, make themselves seem better, I guess. Um, and I will admit I have played a role in that this idea of me not feeling like I was good enough until it's like, you know, I have to get my grades up. I have to be a peer leader. I have to, you know, be good enough so someone wants me to leave this X block. I have to be good enough so I can be, you know, on student government. This whole idea of being good enough, being good enough. And it's like, it's very stressful, especially for a person of color or a black student, you know, it's, it's a lot. I, I do have a question um, because I have not been in the buildings uh, since you guys turned into a little hospital over there. Um, <laughs> um, what are the what are the affinity groups that are currently active, and how do like? Again, I know that we didn't really have that much um, by way of students helping students when I was there. I think we had peer counseling for one year, but we didn't have that a lot. What are what are the conduits for students to help students, right? And then uh, after that question, uh, what do you expect? How do you expect students to react to these policy demands? Yeah, um, I can tell you. I have actually a list of the affinity groups right here. Um, it goes: Black Student Union, the Latinx Affinity Group, High Expectations, um, which is the Asian Affinity Group. Um, girls of Color, Students of Color, um, Just Jewett, the Jewish Affinity Group, um, the GSA, or the Gender Sexuality Alliance, the Adoption Group, Feminism is for Everyone, the Learning Difference Affinity Group, Bring Change to Mind, which is a uh, mental health affinity group, um, Red is Green, Animal Justice, and Engage for Change. Um, Engage for Change is the group that brought us our uh, community service requirement. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a really big, um, you know, support 
community that is student led um, <clears throat> in the school. So the school really fosters this idea of students helping students. Um, and, you know, um, that plays a really big role in our in school lives. Um, do you guys get pushback? Push sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Do you guys get pushback from, because I know uh, just being devil's advocate, right? When I was there, uh, a lot of the kids were a lot of, were very cynical about groups like that. Does that still exist there? Or and, and if so, how do you deal with it? Um, yeah, there's always like that one group of kids um, who, you know, have a substantial amount more money than everyone else, um, you know, they're often white and they want to be black. Um, <clears throat> and so there are kids like that. Those are the kids who are constantly, you know, cracking jokes around um, like sexual harassment policies or are tuning out during uh, the uh, Black History Month assemblies or making jokes during then. Um, you know, and they're the same kids who are getting call outs during the feminism assembly for sexual harassment. So it's like, <clears throat> you know, it's important to realize that while there is a large community, there are also, you know, those haters, right? And you can't let the haters get in the way of you making real change. That being said, um, just to give you a taste of what the diversity is like at LREA now, Marcus and I are the only two black boys in our grade. Um, and then there is another black girl, but that's about it for black people in the class of 2021. So there- yeah, Donnie, just to step in for a bit, um, the school has gotten progressively less diverse um, just speaking on the standpoint of black students, I believe that uh, graduating class of 19 had what, like seven, eight-ish black kids. Um, 20, I think had around the same number and then our grade has three. Yeah, so there's- And, there's, and, and sorry, sorry to interrupt you. I wanna put that into context because again, like uh, my grade had uh, three as well, but we only had like 30 kids, right? So if you're talking about, it's a, it's a very small number, right? Um, so yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, there's this feeling of like, when you're trying to make change happen, um, you don't have that strength in numbers mentality thing. Like it's a lot easier to get things done when there's a lot of people who want it to get done. So we find ourselves working a lot more closely with these other racial affinity groups and the racial harassment policy got started in students of color. Um, so instead of us being able to center around being black, it's more, um, you know, black and non-black students of colors being allies for one common goal. Uh, I want to ask a question about, so high school, right? Kids are mean, kids are jerks, right? Um, and we do have to give space for people to be young, right? We're, we're all learning, right? I've done, actually, I, I was battling back and forth between telling the story, but I'll tell it, you know, vulnerable guy. Um, I got in trouble in high school for using uh, a racial slur, right? Um, someone got called me something, right? So I called that other person something, right? And uh, we both got suspended. I look back on it as a, as a however old, you know, I am now, and I think, wow, that was really dumb. But then, like, the whole entire school was a buzz, and they wanted me to get kicked out, and they wanted the other girl to get kicked out, and they wanted everyone involved, and it would have been, like, five to six kids getting kicked out, right? So when you're going through this policy change and you want uh, the staff and the 
um, administration to really pay a serious attention uh, to incidences of, of racism. Um, where do just being young, how does just being young factor in, right? Um, I can answer that. It's, um, yeah, I think it's very simple. You know, there are people who make mistakes in life, such as, um, I mean, I'll use this as an example because I've personally done it before. I have used the incorrect pronouns for someone before and I was corrected. And then I reached out to find out, you know, what the correct pronouns were. I asked them, you know, are you okay? I apologize. And I took the effort to not make the mistake again and to educate myself. That's a mistake and that's trying to be better. At the same time, there are people who will make that mistake, get educated, be given resources to educate themselves further, and then they'll make the quote unquote mistake again. Because at that point, if you've been given all these resources and been shown how to not do something and you still do it, it's very questionable if it's a mistake. But if you do it more than twice, at this point, it's a part of who you are and it needs to be addressed by the faculty. That's massive, that's big. I know uh, Blakely, when you went, uh, when you were there, one of my close friends, or was one of my close friends, right, uh, had an incident with you where uh, he did something out of pocket and was unapologetic and nothing ever came about uh, from that, right? Uh, does the alumni have any maybe experiences or advice when it comes to uh, how how these young men and uh, should go about uh, addressing that with the administration? Because they're going to want to protect their students, right? They're going to want to uh, protect, especially if they're students that are cashing out, right? How do how do we feel about that? Well, um, I can start. First and foremost, uh, I think you guys' awareness as current students, Ajani and Marcus, is really good. I felt like even though I had, like, certain problems as a student, I was like, am I bugging? Because I felt like I was bugging sometimes because of how they, you know, kind of diminished the seriousness of a lot of stuff. So I'd be like, maybe I'm bugging. Maybe this person is just annoying. Maybe this person is just rude. Maybe this person is, so I didn't take it. It wasn't until even when I wrote my Black at LREI post on the Instagram, that on, Insta, on the Instagram, well, on Instagram, that um, I was just like, wow, all of this stuff happened. And as I started to jog, um, my memory and most of you don't know I'm the one that talked about being pregnant if you guys um and almost being kicked out of of not being my name not being spelled correctly and told that um okay like whatever I'm gonna spell it this way I talked about um Orville's experience and how he was treated so that was my post for you guys who, who aren't who don't know that that was the long long post and those were uh, multiple of my experiences and not all of my experience but um i just think that um what's important is that for the students for the for the faculty to demand from the students 
that there was a certain standard that be upheld because I think that because there's no standard that the students do whatever they want but if the faculty and the administration hold up a standard then they, there's no question because it's it's written like like you guys have a Johnny and Marcus you guys have made uh, this racial um, thing in the handbook like you guys are spelling it out for the um, like what needs to take place and what the demands are to deal with like racial injustice and I think that's very important because if you go to a school and you're not being reprimanded for being stupid then you're going to continue to be stupid if you're not reprimanding for being racist you're not you're going to continue to be racist it's just because if the culture is that and you're not being um and there's and there's no standard set then it's just going to continue to happen and the cycle is going to continue to perpetuate so I just want to. Amy, Amy, go ahead. I just want to clarify something really, really quickly. Um, the racial harassment policy was not only a Johnny and I, um, okay. and I can I can understand that confusing because we haven't really said the names of the people. So hopefully I don't leave anyone out when I say this. But um, the key people were Natalie, Malia, Moena, Dakota, Destiny, Nubia, Leilani, Daniel Jagade, Ramar, and I. Think Onaje, sorry. Um, yeah, that would have been bad if I forgot him. Um, and Brianna as well. Um, so I think that's everyone. I apologize if I left anyone out, but yes. So I just want to augment um, and emphasize uh, what Blakely was was sharing with us, and I want to bring to to the attention of of our two current students here. This is precisely the difference between a public school and a private school where we are paying to commit to standards. I taught with the DOE for a couple of years. And one of the things that I found where I found like I wasn't a great fit with the DOE is that um, categorically there is a limit on, on having zero commentary, zero perspective on what happens in inside the home of any student in a public school, because that is a private space. However, when you decide to attend a prep school, a preparatory school, you decide to commit to standards of the community. And so when you are saying that you are a present and capable member of the Little Red community, you are saying that in addition to paying to be a part of this community, you are committed in your lifestyle and in your standards at home to reinforce social justice, human decency, maturity, integrity, um, you, you stu as current students, you have every, every right and every reason to remind administrators that this is a private community for a reason. And this is precisely where we want our agency to show. We want to show that we are proactively looking to, to be standard bearers for our mission statement. It is not inappropriate to have a, a point of view on what happens inside the homes of, of students, for better and for worse. But that's what we sign up for. I think that's such an important uh, point because we do forget about that. I see you, Ajani. I do want to uh, just interject. The coming from a grade who, again, we didn't have that much in by way of like social justice and you know looking for all of that. Um, maybe it was just the time that we were in. Um, 
but we did have a lot of parental involvement, right? Um, we had a lot of parents jumping in and saying, uh, this is what we're going to demand. And I'm not talking about parents of color. I'm talking about parents who had sway in the community, parents whose name rang, parents who had five, six kids in the school, right? Parents who, uh, who, had, who could get into Phil's office without, like, who could just walk up in there, right? Um, creating policy is one thing. Demanding standards is another thing. But how do you deal with parents who, and uh, Johnny, I want you to answer what you uh, was going to talk about first, but how do you deal with the parents, right? Because ain't no, ain't, what can you do, right? So Johnny, please. Um, yeah, so that leads me a bit into talking about one of the main parts of the racial harassment policy, um, which is the, um, oh my God, Marcus, correct me if I'm, I've been calling it by the acronym for so long. It's the Racial and Ethnic Harassment Accountability Board or otherwise known as rehab. Um, and so the thought process behind this is like, there is a very key difference between being rude and being racist. Um, and what often happens is when it's left open to the interpretation of the administration, this is very different from the story that you told us, Kyle, but um, when it's left open to the interpretation of the administration, it just gets written off as rude. Um, and so the uh, rehab, or the, the board, um, it's going to be a group of students, um, each one student chosen from each affinity group, um, and those students will get together when an act of racism is committed in the community, and they will then decide what the response should be to that act of racism. Because if you look through Black at LREI, all the problems seem to be stemming from the fact that the administration is just not handling accountability like they should. So it's we figured that it's time for accountability in a sense to be taken out of their hands because they're not handling it correctly. So we would of course have to get permission from them, you know, when it comes to like suspension and expulsion, but you know, it's important that we are the ones deciding how it affects us because this is our community. This is our education. Um, and we should be able to decide what happens in this institution to that extent. I, I just want to say, I love that because it is, I was talking to a friend um, who was putting together something about taking certain uh, administration out, right? And um, my response was, you know, kind of like, instead of being a cancel culture, we should be like a council culture and kind of saying, all right, you, you might not have been addressing uh, the needs of the community effectively, but let me show, let me, let me tell you how you could help us more, right? Instead of saying, here's your papers, get out, right? Um, Ajani, did you have anything else? To say? Yeah, go ahead. Um, this is to answer your question a bit. And now that you mentioned cancel culture, um, cancel culture is alive and well at LRAI. Um, and it's very prominent and I disagree with it like beyond words um, because there's a difference. I know that that says a lot, but um, there's a difference between like when you go to cancel someone, right there currently what happens a lot is someone will say something or do something and they'll just get canceled like that and just turns you know a group of people or a community against them which then um you know creates resentment for that person and only drives them to do it more when you could instead take them in educate them as to why you know what they're doing is wrong and you can possibly produce a success like you know 
someone who used to be racist and say racist things, but is now, now understands the problem with what they're saying. Now, if you go and you educate them and then they still do it, then yeah, no, they're canceled. Screw them. No one likes them. Um, but you know, you don't want to just start off with canceling. And so that's leads me a bit to what you said about the parents in which the goal here is to like, let's say you come from a racist household, right? You want, and you know, like, we want people to have their own free will. Like you shouldn't just, you know, project what you have in your household. So if you're surrounded by a community that promotes anti-racism, then you can go home to your parents and your parents will be racist. But if you have more people on the outside who are telling you, you know, racism is bad, then you do at home, then the hope is that you will choose the right side. That makes a lot of sense. Does anyone want to jump in and respond? I think, um going back to the whole parent thing, I think that has to do with what I talked about, about the standard, because I, once you make this a, like a part of what is to be expected coming into the school and really not just to be expected, but to be upheld, like this, this is, this anti-racism is, is definitely uh, serious. And this is what is a part of our community. And we are going to uphold uh, these things set out by the student body, then I feel like uh, parents will either have to accept it or have to, I feel like a lot of the time uh, racists, like true racists who are not open will weed themselves out. And if the school decides to really uphold this, then they'll start pulling their kids out of the school. If they're really that uncomfortable, they will not be there. And boo-hoo for them. They don't need to be there if they're racist and they don't want to support a community of social justice and anti-racism. Do you think that they would pull their kids out or they would fight harder against the voice? And I'm not saying that to dissuade or to, you know, I'm sure that these guys are, are not going to be scared wherever, but do you think that, especially knowing these parents, right, we, we've all been there, we've all had dealings with the parents, do you think they are the type of parents to say, okay, you know what, I'm just going to pick up my, my tent and go somewhere else, or double and triple down, right? Because I've had experiences, not maybe not, well, racially uh, inspired, um, that the parents say, all right, we, this, this, needs to be this needs to happen, right? But the, but the administration cannot use their money or their influence to sway the standard and that's the importance of it you can't be like oh well they they're on the board and they give this amount of money to us but so should. We're, gonna, we're gonna we're gonna be okay with their their racist child that continues to like you know give racial slurs and all of that no but society wise we know should and should yeah. happen and can happen right uh, two different things young men please whoever wants to jump in jump in I think that that's the entire point of, you know, the racial and ethnic um, harassment accountability board. You know, this idea that money plays such a large factor in every decision at LRI. Um, and it's a harsh truth, but it is very true. There's a lot of examples I could name that I won't name for the purpose of remaining on the administration's good side, but, um, yeah, money plays a really big factor. And with rehab, the entire point is, you know, we leveled out different 
types of racism and as well as how harmful they are. And we made it very clear that as much power as we did give ourselves, it's not 100% us, you know? There are very three distinctive examples of say like level one, um, level one racism, which sounds weird, but you know, once the policy gets out, it will make sense. Um, there's very, it's very elaborate. So it's like, hey, it's not one of these three things. Let's go to rehab. Let's talk with these students, find out what they believe should be a type of accountability for this. You know, for example, someone says the N word, they need to be educated about that. If it's their first time, they need to be educated, say, hey, this is why that is wrong. And we want you to apologize to this person, make an effort not to do that. Because if you do again, you know, you will be held accountable in a different way. Because now it's not just miseducation, it's disrespect. That, that, that's really big. Uh, Ajani, please. Yeah. And then going back to what we were saying before with, um, you know, white, you know, wealthy white parents pulling their students out of the school or fighting back. I think that that is when you get to like a really important ultimatum for the administration um, of what do you care about more? Do you need, do you care more about the money that you're getting from students or do you care more about the safety and well-being of the students in your institution? And if it's the money, then something else needs to be reevaluated, right? It should absolutely 100% be the, you know, what's best for your students, right? So if we have a situation in which the administration is choosing money over the safety of their students, then like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> it's, it's crazy because it goes back to what Amy said, you know, at the top of the episode, life isn't fair and people aren't, you know, always the best. They don't always have the best intentions. Right. And I know that the administration, when I was there, at least the visible ones, uh, <laughs> the visible ones were, were pretty dope. Right. We had Ruth. Um, and uh, Sarvjit Blakely brought up was was great to her, um, but I do want to ask Akeem because Akeem because you know you've worked in uh, schools that aren't as progressive, right? So what where do you weigh in on all of this in terms of parents? You know, parents have a lot of power. Um, I always tell students and parents that even parents of color who sometimes in these institutions don't feel like they have a voice. I would tell them that your voice is as valuable as anybody else's voice. Those with money, those without money, those who are white, those who are of color. I think their voices and the voices of parents are super valuable in these spaces. I think parents are the first line of advocacy for students. And I always implore parents with students of color in these institutions to stand up and be a presence in those communities because I think just like the students um, are navigating these predominantly white institutions and are having to figure all this stuff out, I think the parents are navigating the same kind of things themselves, just like the faculty and staff are. So we, we, we navigate in the bubbles that we are, but we're all navigating the same kind of white heteronormative, white supremacist, um, racist culture that these institutions tend to foster to some extent. So I do think that parents have a voice. Um, the parents whose voices tend to be more vocal are the parents who tend to be heard more. And I think sometimes the voices that are more vocal tend to be the voices that are 
antithetical to the institution, meaning they're the ones who are going to be pushing back against every initiative and every goal and every platform agenda that the school pushes on. And I think there needs to be voices on the other side doing much of the same work. If there's an initiative and an agenda item that stands out as something that is working well for the school, I think parents need to have their voices known and support that just as much as the parents who are coming in against those those um, initiatives as well. So I think the parent voice, especially the parent voice for students of color, I think is super valuable in these spaces. Go ahead, Marcus. Um, I feel like if you come to LREI, which entire mission statement is social justice, and you know, you've seen or heard about all of these Black History Month assemblies or the feminism assembly where people were held accountable for sexual harassment, if you're aware of all of these things and you admit your child to LREI and you have an issue with them being held to a standard of, hey, don't be racist, you know, I feel like that's a much deeper issue. Um, perhaps mostly intellectually. You admitted your child to a school centered around social justice and you're angry that they're, be, that they're being expected to respect people who like need social justice, you know, black people, Latinx, Asian people, all of these people of color. We're like, you know, we need these rights, not only in the real world, but in our schools as well. So it would, you know, it would be cool if your child could just respect that. And if you have a problem with us, just like mind your business. We're not bothering you. We're just existing in a school that we also were admitted to. Um, I want to, because I know we all have a lot of stuff to do and this has been a great conversation. I want uh, the alumni to give last words of encouragement. Um, and I want the, the young guys um, to tell us how we can be of a better help. There is talk of, I don't want to put too much out there, but there is talk of offering more support in terms of um, students or alumni of color. Uh, but tell us a little bit more about what we can do to help you guys. And alumni, y'all do your thing. So I'm just, there have been so many gems for me in this conversation. Um, I want you two students in particular, so Marcus and, and Ajani, I want you to always remember that in speaking truth to power, the most direct and plain way to highlight the reason why there can be a long delay on progress is to ask parents, you know, what does, how much leadership will they exhibit along with the, with their tuition check? Because really, you can get a lot of folks together in a room to spend two or three hours together and agree on on the spirit of this conversation and agree on middle ground for for the points where we're, we may have different uh, you know different details in mind. But you're gonna have to get the folks writing the checks to commit to leadership, commit to leadership in how they parent their own children and commit to leadership in how they embrace change because some of these changes will come with financial consequences that will have to be reconciled with the endowment during the next recession. And you know, if we do, if we allow the rehab council to exist now, 
will we be able to offer scholarships for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten students of color in the next two or three years? But really, it is your right and it is your duty as an intelligent young young person who's becoming an adult to ask the parents, you know, how much leadership are you contributing with your tuition, uh, with your tuition money? Because you really are going to have to remind them that they have to be leaders at home and they have to remember that life is about change, even for them. Thank you so much, Amy, for that. That was so great. Um, Blakely, do you want to go next? Sure. Um, I think that I'm actually proud that um, you, um, Ajani and Marcus, because like I said, I wasn't vocal at all in high school about, I wasn't really, but there was no black student union and things like that. But um, so I didn't really feel like I had the space to be vocal. And so I really applaud you guys for really, um, and whoever else is involved as well, as you said, it's not just you guys, but I really applaud the students for taking the steps to form those affinity groups and to work together to demand um, that uh, a culture of anti-racism at LREI. As I said, I think that, um, sorry, that's my dog, but as I said, I think that, um, it's going to be, it has to be a standard that's upheld. I feel like um, it's not just about um, saying our mission statement, because I feel like a lot of the times, you know, these parents, they know each other. And so they pass what goes on in the school that, that goes around, word of mouth. And so the mission statement might say social justice, but if um, if they know from their, friends and their co-workers like oh they don't really focus on that that's not really you know what I'm saying they may still send their children there so like I said the standard is definitely important making making sure that uh people know like this is this is what's happening here and like Amy said the people who are their money they're contributing their money to uh LREI them knowing like how are you what kind of leaders are you going to be in this school and in this institution Yes, thank you for that. Kim, you up, brother. All right. Um, you know, I think back on the fact that I graduated LREI 18 years ago. So I graduated before the students were there or even born. And to see how far we've come in 18 years, but to see how much of the same issues that existed 18 years ago are still present there, we, we, we discuss these issues now, and these were issues that were discussed when I was at LREI. These were instances that were discussed when the first black and brown students decided to enroll at independent schools um, in New York City, which roughly was in the mid-70s. So I think these stories and these instances and these issues are endemic to the institutions, are endemic to society, but I think we're at a time um, when we can't ignore them anymore. I think just like we can't ignore the fact that a police officer's knee was at a man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, because that's all we could see. We can't ignore the fact that whether implicitly or explicitly, black and brown students and marginalized students generally have felt like we've had our, we've had someone's knee on the back of our necks for a certain level of our experience. 
And I think because we can't ignore that anymore, it's time to hold those people who are accountable to that, hold them accountable, make them realize that our voice and our opinions and our experiences to the institution are valuable and that we are needed there at the institution. And the more you do that, the more you will become empowered to continue doing that. Because once you leave LREI, the instances and issues won't disappear. You will go on to, in many cases, predominantly white colleges, and then you'll probably work to predominantly white institutions upon that graduation, and you will still experience some of what you're experiencing now. So I think using high school as that incubator to get the skill set to know how to fight these issues, to know how to craft messaging and create commissions and create co coalitions across various groups will only serve you in your best stead as you move on. Because again, I think the experience of being black and brown in America is one where you will always experience these things. So really use this time to really cultivate some of those strengths in you now so that by the time you're ready to step onto the college campuses, hopefully in person <laughs> at some point, that you will know what you need to do and more importantly, you know how to do it. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, who wants to go next? One of you guys. Um, yeah, so when it comes to like what we need from alumni, I know that there's a lot of anger from the alumni. And I know that because I have a lot of anger and I'm currently in Rome. Um, and so what I just don't want to happen is I don't want a lot of decisions to be made like exclusively out of anger without talking to us first to find out what we're doing to try and solve the problem. You know, what we're work, who we're working with, like what's going on in the school um, before you make, you know, decisions that will inevitably affect us. Um, you know, just to mention one, like there was a petition that went around for um, Phil's removal. Um, that, that was quite counterproductive in my opinion. Um, and had someone reached out beforehand and asked us like, hey, would this be a good idea? Then we would have been able to tell them, yeah, no, <laughs> um, because we're working with him currently. Um, so, you know, with all that, like you, there are people who you can reach out to. You can reach out to us. And I'd be really upset if I didn't mention these people, but there's a lot of really important devoted faculty members at the school um, who, you know, spend a lot of time on this stuff, you know, namely like Ileana Jimenez, like you like we've mentioned, uh, Charlene Cruz-Sertes, who's the recent diversity, equity, and uh, inclusion facilitator at the school. Um, yeah, and <laughs> yes, Preeti Thomas-McKnight and um, Calvin Walds. Um, like we were losing Preeti this year, but Preeti's the best. No um, way, Preeti is amazing. <laughs> oh my God, no, I love her. Um, you know, and I could mention more, but you know, just to wrap this up, you know, finally, Dr. Daniel Lee, um, you know, those are the people who they lead the affinity groups and they offer us the resources that we need. They make sure that we feel supported um, in whatever endeavor. And they're also whispering in the ear of the administration. Um, and oh my God, I can't forget Manjula Nair. She's actually on the administration, um, and Sarbjit Munga, who's also on the administration. They're they're all our, they're all our allies. Um, you know, they're just trying to make sure that our voices are heard correctly and that our best intention, like you know, everything's being made with our best intentions at heart. I don't know. Vocabulary eludes me at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Marcus, go ahead. Last but not least. Yeah, remind me not to speak after Johnny again. Um, I'm not really sure how to follow up after that. But yeah, I think that personally for me, I think 
staying in contact is the main thing for the alumni because as mentioned earlier, um, I believe Ajani said this, there's not really an availability for strength in numbers right now at LREI. Um, and that was reason for us having all the affinity group leaders sign the racial harassment policy. And we even had some alumni um, much more recent just to make it seem stronger. So when it comes to instances like that, where we need to show the school that, hey, this is an ongoing issue, you know, having connection to you guys to be able to be on board with us, sign this and say, hey, this is going on now. This was going on when I graduated as well, or when he graduated or she graduated or they graduated. Like, we need your voices to amplify ours, um, which is going back to the, you know, the squeak of a mouse thing. It's not about you guys, you know, being like, oh, I'm the student body president, you guys are alumni, and that's fine. But, you know, I drop a needle, it makes a noise. I drop a thousand needles, it makes a much bigger noise. Yes, yes, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like, just to wrap up, um, again, uh, when I was going there, there was nothing close to what you guys are doing. Uh, there were very few people that were as aware and willing to put their themselves on the line um, to affect such change. Um, we're proud of you guys. I feel like we have to listen, right? It's, it's like Johnny said, right? And not only listen, but have one voice, right? Have We might have differences, but let's get together and have a voice for those who are listening that uh, are wondering what they can do older, the, us old guys, right? Again, let's not rush to the, to, to the jump and go out there and go to war and leave kids who, not kids, sorry, leave these young people who have to live with this every day to, 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 you know, live with the consequences of our rush to judgment and rush to action. We got to listen. Uh, the the account holder, I, I don't know who you are, but I have to shout you out, the account uh, manager of Black at LREI. Uh, didn't call me out, but uh, made sure today that I was staying, that I had asked uh, Ajani and Marcus certain things so that they were comfortable, right? Because at the end of the day, we can, a lot of times older folk wag our little fingers and say, you got to listen to what I, you know, I've been there, I've done that. but especially in an alumni situation, we don't have to deal with that every day, right? Um, I want to thank you guys for coming on from the bottom of my heart. It makes me, and I, I, it's ineffable, right? How proud it makes me to see you guys. As a recovering knucklehead, right? As someone who just was not all there, right? <laughs> in terms of being active in high school, it makes me so proud to see you guys doing a thing right? It makes me so proud. And um, I want to encourage everyone who's listening, if you want to, um, if you want to continue the conversation, please, uh, I'll have a, a link in the bio on this uh, so that we can set up a little group because we got to stay in touch, right? 
there, there is power in numbers. Uh, no matter how distant or far apart we are, we can still network and we can still get things done. Um, does anyone have any last? Oh, I, I do want to say this right before we close. I intentionally did not invite um, outside of the community people, uh, not as a disrespect, but sometimes um, we have to um, we have to figure out what we're doing before we can hear other voices. Right. We don't want to have too many voices before we have our head on straight. So now that we have our head on straight, I, I want people from outside the community and allies and whoever else to come in and, and help the situation the way they can. Guys, thank you so much. Shout out to uh, Ileana for your valiant efforts. Shout out. Geez, 60 people are great. Karen's probably going crazy in that library. Um, shout out to Ruth. You know, we love you. Um, whoever else, anyone else want to say any last words before we go, please take it away. Yeah. Yeah. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone who's worked with us to create, um, you know, the racial harassment policy, the letter, people who signed it, had their name, you know, big letters on the bottom of it. Um, you know, we really appreciate what you're doing to help us. Even if you're not black as a decent handful of the students who signed that were not black. Um, so it's really good to know that we have those allies and we're depending on you for so many things and you know thank you for this thank you to the students who helped us and to the faculty and thank you to the administration for continuing to listen do you guys um if they wanted to to reach out what would be the best way to reach you guys if, yeah. if there is a way email email uh, yeah my email is um jackson.ajani at gmail.com okay. um, yeah, um, and for me, I guess just using my school email, um, 21marcusm at lrei.org. Okay. Y'all know how to reach me, uh, finding good times anywhere. Anywhere. Um, thanks, guys, for coming out. Johnny, Kim, Blakely, Marcus, Amy, thank y'all so much. Uh, I'm sure that this won't be the last conversation, probably won't be the last episode. Uh, we invite you guys back at any time. Hopefully I see you guys in person uh, sooner than later. I love you guys. Go in peace. God bless. Thanks. Guys, after that, there ain't much more to say. I pray that you listened. I pray that you heard. And I pray that you tried to understand what these young men are saying and not only saying, but doing. It's very important work. And we are so proud of them. I pray that you stand with us, with the alumni that took part in this episode and offer not only these young men, but the black student body as a whole, your support, your love, and whatever else that they may need when it comes to introducing this policy. And as we go forward, filling in other voids that may be filled in, that may need to be filled in rather. I love you, I thank you for joining. Any of the uh, people that this is your first time listening, I invite you to go to the prior episodes and learn a little bit more about what we offer here at Finding Good Times, Good Radio. You can follow us on uh, Instagram at Finding Good Times. Um, 
website, findinggoodtimes.com. We post uh, new podcast episodes every Tuesday and Thursday and new content every day on Instagram. It's all about love, guys. All about listening. All about stories. It's all about reaching out to other people and helping them grow. Helping us grow. That's what Finding Good Times is about. Not just my platform. It's our platform. Let's say it. Think good. See good. Do good. But most importantly, be good. I love you. Thanks. Good people, don't forget to follow Finding Good Times at Finding Good Times on all platforms, at Finding Good Times on all available platforms, and of course, FindingGoodTimes.com. Keep following, keep sharing, keep reposting, most importantly, keep being good. Love y'all.